Listening to the Coffee Hour. I'm Sarah Golseth. It is Bach Week this week. It is super exciting on the Coffee Hour to be talking about all things JS Bach this week. We have some fantastic conversations. If you aren't able to listen live to all of them, that's okay. We have our Bach Week archives at kfuo.org/slash the coffee hour. You can find all of those things, all of these interviews there. You're going to want to listen to all five of them. We cover a a very broad array of topics all about J.S. Bach. Uh, We've had some very, very fun conversations and uh, a very... a very uh, hashtag him nerd conversation happening today. So this is this is very exciting. Thanks to Concordia University, Wisconsin, for your support of the coffee hour. You can find out more about Concordia University, Wisconsin at cuw.edu. Joining me today during Bach Week, uh, a familiar voice when we talk about hymnody, Benjamin Kologi, member of Faith Lutheran Church in Plano, Texas, highly active church organist and composer and contributor to the Lutheran service book, Hymnal Companion. Thank you so much for joining me today. You're welcome, Sarah. I'm glad to be here. Are you excited? Are you as excited about Bach Week as we are? Well, I am, but I have to confess that my birthday is on July 29th, which is a day after his death day. So I have double reason to be excited about this week. Indeed you do. Oh, that that is good timing for a birthday. You get to celebrate Bach and, and your week. own birthday. Yeah, all week. There you go. <laughs> Oh, so today we get to talk about Bach in uh, relation to church music, congregational singing, our own hymnody, um, a very uh, hashtag hymn nerd conversation, which I'm very excited about. So first, let's talk about congregational singing. How was congregational singing a priority for Bach? Well, that's a really good place to start, because as you may know, Bach's position um, in Leipzig at the Thomaskirche, which were, which is where he was most of his career, he was known as a cantor. And uh, we encounter that in the modern LCMS these days, too, increasingly so. We used to not see that term much, but the term cantor, and it's spelled K-A-N-T-O-R, it really refers primarily to the leader of the congregational's, the congregation's song. Um, this and you know this doesn't necessarily mean just an organist or choir master, although I suppose both of those are implied. But it's really more more general. Um, the cantor in Bach's case was a trained professional musician, and his job was to ensure that the music of the services uh, was appropriate. It was related to the theme of the day, um, and that it could be led in such a way that the congregation could sing. Everything led to the congregation singing. So in a broad sense, I suppose, a cantor, of which Bach is really the ultimate example, teaches a congregation the music of the church. And uh, he ensured that the musical um, tradition is passed down from one generation to another. Um, You know, these days, I mean, personally, I, I like to do classes on worship and music. Um, Bach probably didn't do that. Um, His influence was through through modeling the music, through performing and teaching his choirs good church music, um, all of which, of course, rotates around the hymns that were for assigned for any given Sunday. So, in a way, Bach's prioritizing of congregational singing as a cantor was simply a continuing of 
Luther's theology of sacred music. Um, and, and really, I find this, in this way, Bach is a good example to me and to other uh, Lutheran church musicians. Uh, everything we do should focus on congregational singing. I wanted to bring up one quote I found um, relative to Bach and his preservation of hymnody, which, which also relates to singing. Um, the, the theologian Yaroslav Pelikan, he wrote this. He says, if some calamity, natural or man-made, were to obliterate the existing hymns of Martin Luther, which the catalog of his works lists as 38 in number, um, it would be largely, though not quite completely, possible to reconstruct all of the most important hymns, both their words and their music, on the basis of the compositions of Johann Sebastian Bach, unquote. Mm -hmm. So I think this kind of says that, that Bach really believed in congregational hymnody in the same way that Luther did. Luther introduced congregational hymnody again back to the German church, and Bach very much continued that. And um, I think uh, an, another way that congregational singing was a priority for him, and it takes us into our hymnal, if we have our LSV there. Um, and I, I'd like to look at one example. Um, the versions of the hymns that Bach used give us a clue to the importance of congregational singing. So I'm, I'm, I'm treading into dangerous territory now by, <laughs> by sending you to a mighty fortress, 656. I say dangerous territory because everybody has opinions about this. They all have their own opinions about the proper version of a mighty fortress, but I'm going to stay away from that right now. But if we look at 656, this is the original version, of course, coming from Luther. It's a rhythmic version. It has a driving forward motion and syncopated rhythm. And um, uh, uh, many of these early chorales had this same sort of dance-like rhythm that are reminiscent perhaps of a Renaissance dance. But keep in mind that Luther's hymnody was originally sung by families and small groups at home. Um, there were no hymnals like there were today. In fact, if you remember the first Lutheran hymnal, the Achtliederbuch, the, the songbook of eight hymns, um, just a little brochure, as we might um, think of it these days. But this sort of rhythmic tune, a mighty fortress is our God, a trusty shield and weapon. This is a, a very dance-like tune. It's great to be sung by small groups, but as time developed as um, hymnody became part of the liturgy, um, the tunes became what we call isorhythmic. They straightened out. They became more even. And if anybody's interested in this story, which is really very interesting, um, Joseph Hurl has a book called Worship Wars in 16th Century Lutheranism, which he really details how this happened. But by the time you get to Bach, you get this straightened rhythm of 657. A mighty fortress is our God, which, if you think about it, during Bach's time in Leipzig, they would have two or 3,000 people at the Hauptgottesdienst, the main service of a Sunday. And if you had that many people together, it's much easier to sing these grand tunes um, rather than the original Luther tune. So... So Bach, in, in all of Bach's settings of the tunes, whether they're found in his, his um, cantatas or his organ works, he uses these, and I'm going to say them the congregational friendly tunes. And one can debate that because personally, I said I wasn't going to say it, but I, I'll just say it now. I prefer 
Luther's original original melody, and I do think a congregation can sing that just as well. But at the at the time, that was using these melodies was a way of um, allowing more people to sing. And indeed, it must have been a grand sound with choir and instruments uh, um, leading this hymnody. Mm-hmm. Absolutely. I, I, uh, we discussed this once on a Lutheran Ladies Lounge podcast that there is a time and a place for both of these settings. <laughs> exactly, exactly. <laughs> so how, how was J.S. Bach um, different? What set him apart from other composers of this time? Well, let's perhaps think about one of the other famous composers of the Baroque era, and that's Handel. And if you say Handel, most people think of the Messiah. And the Messiah was actually written in 1742. And normally we attend performances of the Messiah during the Christmas season, um, although the three sections of the Messiah cover really the whole uh, breadth of the liturgical year. It, it's uh, the Messiah is wonderful, sacred music. It's edifying. It presents scripture. In fact, of the 50 vocal portions of the Messiah, uh, two thirds of the text is taken from Old Testament scripture, which maybe explains why it's used um, during Advent and Christmas so much. Um, but compare that with which we're we're very familiar with that. But compare that to two of Bach's major works from the same time, the 1740s, and I, I would posit the St. Matthew and the St. John's Passions. These are huge works, but I think the comparison here perhaps illustrates the difference between these very two fine composers. So Bach's Passions are like the Messiah because they're long, they're multi-movement, uh, they utilize orchestra and choir and soloists, and they relate a scripture narrative. But the passions take as their textual basis the Gospels. And of course, they have arias and chorales and, that interpolate the Gospels. But the, by taking the Gospels as their basis, they require us really personally to confront the claims of Christ that he has in the Gospel. And therefore, I think, it's my opinion, that these works, the passions, take on a distinctly liturgical character. And by that mean, I'm, I'm, I mean they are suitable for church use. They inhabit a certain time of the church year, obviously Lent, and their texts really belong in church. So unlike the Messiah, Bach's passions and his cantatas contain portions for the congregation or the audience to sing. Uh, Bach would intersperse these great chorales. Now, oftentimes we go to the Messiah performances and we sing along with Hallelujah Chorus, right? But that wasn't um, Handel's original intention. Yet. Bach wanted to bring these truths of the scripture text as sung by the choirs to the hearts of his listeners. And I think he did that by introducing uh, congregational singing into this. And also let's consider Mozart. Mozart was a Catholic and Catholic church music of this time required much less participation by the congregation. And of course, very little singing. So Mozart wrote some great, wonderful pieces, including his Requiem, which really is, in a way, a liturgical work, but most of his music was composed for the concert stage, for the court, for for um, the people who were paying him to compose. And the same thing could be said for Haydn, too, also a devout Catholic. And he wrote Laus Deo to the praise of God on all his uh, compositions, but he worked for royal courts most of his life. And I think even though Haydn wrote like, Seven Last Words is one of his most famous pieces, 
because Bach worked in the church the majority of his life, his music speaks to the church, to the liturgical year, to the church con concerns, and it speaks to the gospel, translating the gospel um, to the common language. And I think that's what we can um, most take from Bach as Lutherans, that he speaks to us as a church musician. Mm -hmm. Absolutely. And uh, we have more to talk about, about, about J.S. Bach and uh, where we find his music in our hymnody. Uh, we're talking with Benjamin Kologi during Bach week this week. We have more after this quick break. You're listening to The Coffee Hour. I'm Sarah Golseth. You're a miracle. You know that, right? A living, breathing, one-of-a-kind miracle. You were created to stand apart, to share your gifts in the service of others, to make an uncommon impact in a common world. And at Concordia University, it's our mission to help you do that, to live uncommon. To learn more about Concordia, go to cuw.edu. You're listening to The Coffee Hour. I'm Sarah Golseth. It is Bach Week this week. Super fun uh, happening this week, talking about all different aspects of J.S. Bach and his life, his work, uh, his music, all of these things. Today, we're focusing on where we find Bach's music in our hymnal, what sets him apart uh, as a composer who focused so much on congregational singing and uh, making sure that this music was part of the the life of the church. We're talking with Benjamin Kologi today, a familiar voice when we talk about hymnody. So, uh, Benjamin, how did J.S. Bach view the relationship of his work as a musician to the ministry of the word? Yeah, that's a good question. And it presupposes that Bach's theology as a Lutheran theologian, you know, he wasn't just a musician. Uh, his music was inspired by a deep faith. You know, I'm sure we all know he wrote um, in Latin, um, Sola Dea Gloria or Jesu Juva, uh, Jesus Help Me, at the end of much of his music. Um, but to me, this only tells a general nature of his faith and maybe doesn't differentiate him much from, say, Haydn, who wrote Laut Deo. But uh, Bach's scholarship really has recognized that Bach's, Bach maintained a deep Lutheran faith. His training was classical and it was imbued with Lutheran theology and practice. And he knew Luther's catechism well. We know that because he composed later called the third part of the Klavierübung, um, the catechism chorales, in which he uses chorale settings on the organ to illustrate the six chief parts of Luther's catechism, the commandments, creed, prayer, Lord's Prayer, baptism, confession, and Lord's Supper. Um, and his library was said to have contained a vast selection of theological volumes as well as musical ones. So I think we can really deduce from this that Bach's interest in sacred music was informed by his own scripture reading, study, and faith. And I think, Sarah, to, my, to, to your uh, St. Louis connections there, um, uh, Concordia Seminary in St. Louis owns what is called the Kalav Bible or the Kalav Commentary. And this is a three-volume set of biblical commentary by Luther, um, as interpreted by um, Abraham Kalav later, 
And this three-volume set was actually owned by Bach. I think the seminary got in the 30s or something. But this is an extraordinary um, a set of books. It was owned by Bach. It was signed by him, dates from 1733. And personally, I collect antiquarian books. So these sort of things fascinate me. So one time when I was in St. Louis, I went and, and visited this book and got to hold it and touch it. And it was kind of amazing for those of us who love that sort of thing. But in the margins of the Bible, you can see Bach wrote some notes um, where he thought, he was theologizing where these verses went. For example, um, Exodus 15, the, the account of Miriam, um, taking, she's dancing with timbrels in her hands, and Bach, Bach writes an annotation that says, first prelude for two choirs to be sung to the glory of God. Um, or he uh, takes the chapter, Second Chronicles 5, where he talks about the Levites, those who were in charge of the singing of the temple, much like he was in charge of the singing of, of the church, and he writes, in devotional music, God is always present with his grace. So, you know, he had, he had a, a real faith here. And, but, you know, if, even if you don't believe that that speaks to his faith, I, I find that the following does, and his name appears on the communion attendance register at the Thomaskirche in Leipzig for all of the years that he's there, and the same thing about private confession. That, that was very common in the Lutheran church at the time. And uh, Bach had a couple of different confessors that he used at the time. And I know through the years, some scholars have wanted to consider Bach primarily as a musician who kind of used the church music as a vehicle for his art. But I just don't think this is borne out by the facts. Bach was definitely a fervent Lutheran, a fervent Christian in a church that proclaimed the gospel for hundreds of years. <laughs> and and one, one last thing, if we consider where the cantatas were meant to be sung in the service, they were within the, we have the two parts of the service, right? The service of the word and the service of the sacrament. We, we know that. But the cantatas were situated within the service of the word. So basically they probably would have been presented between the gospel and the creed, and then the second half following the sermon. So even from a very practical perspective, Bach's music was meant to proclaim the word of God. Mm -hmm. So you mentioned already that we have uh, Lutheran Service Book 657, the 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 other quote-unquote setting of A Mighty Fortress, right. as one of those settings in our hymnal. Where else do we find the music of Bach in our hymnody today? Right, so... I mean, if you look to the to the index of LSB, you'll see that there's basically six six tunes that were either composed or arranged by Bach, and one of those is a repeat. Um, so we we find him directly there. But I, I think in general, Bach's chorale settings, particularly from the cantatas, I mean, they are sung by churches and choirs every week throughout the world, and. I think it's a, a treasure that our Lutheran hymnal still maintains uh, many of those that we're able to do. Um, in, in some cases, I think Bach chorales are seen more as maybe anthems or concert works rather than church music sung by the congregation. And that's okay. I mean, it's, it's at least heard and sung. Um, but there's plenty of vocal music which... Um, which uh, finds its way into the hymnal from Bach that deserves to be sung. But I'd also like to rephrase this question a bit. And 
and ask, where does Bach allow our hymnody to be found today? Hmm. And uh, if we think about it, Bach's music is in a way, it's a vehicle to present Lutheran hymnody to audiences who would never otherwise sing or hear a hymn text. So I'm thinking particularly the preponderance of musical ensembles in the United States these days that are dedicated to early music, not even just to Bach. But here in Dallas, we have an organization appropriately called the Dallas Bach Society, and they regularly present Bach cantatas, and in this case, often in an LCMS church here in town. Um, and here the audience is able to read the translated hymn texts as it's sung by the musicians. And of course, this happens in concert venues all over the world. People who might not open a Bible, they don't sing from a hymnal, don't even know what that is. They're, they may attend one of these concerts where his music is uh, a vehicle for God's word. That, I, I think perhaps the, the verse in Isaiah 55, I think, so, so shall my word be, it will not return to me void. No, it's God doing the work, not Bach, but he is the vehicle. Um, but, you know, you don't have to believe me. I've, it's kind of famous, but uh, there's a Time magazine uh, uh, issue devoted to Bach in December 1968, which featured him on the cover, and it proclaimed him as the fifth evangelist. And I really think that's true. The gospel scripture is so imbued within his music his music communicates it so well, even to mo modern audiences. Absolutely. So as we share a, a common Lutheran heritage with these Lutherans of the 1700s who, who had the joy of hearing Bach's music uh, live performed for the first time, singing these cantatas that were, that were fresh, that he had just written, sharing that, that Lutheran heritage, where, maybe, where might we see these similarities and differences in the services and music of Bach and his time compared to our LCMS churches today? Well, I think the first place to start is the liturgy. We're fortunate in LSB, the Divine Service Three. That's basically the traditional mass form. And that would have been known by Bach. It would have been known by his congregation. You know, they would have sung the Kyrie. They would have sung the Gloria. They would have sung the Sanctus, um, the Agnus Dei, maybe the Sanctus to Luther's setting of Isaiah, Mighty Seer in Days of Old. But regardless, it was the, the same liturgy that we sing. Now, now, their services lasted much longer than ours do, of course. A, a sermon could be an hour long. Communion could last just as long if you're dealing with thousands of people. But the point is the liturgy, the readings, everything was, was as we have it today. We had congregational singing. We had um, you know, proclamation. We had communion. And also, I think much of the actual hymnody Bach would have known we sing to this day. I talked about Luther, Bach keeping Luther's hymns alive. When we sing um, A Mighty Fortress or some of these that Bach knew, we're singing along with generations of Christians. Um, I, think, I think the difference is that our corporate liturgical life, maybe, this is perhaps my opinion, is less rich and diverse than it was in Leipzig at box time. Our services are shorter. We don't want our sermons too long. We don't want our music too long. <laughs> so it's harder for church musicians to keep box music alive in our liturgical context. It's really hard to perform a box cantata, even if you had the resources. And I don't know about other church musicians, but myself, you know, I draw on volunteer musicians largely, and they're pulled all sorts of different directions. It's difficult to get people together to rehearse 
music, much less put together um, wonderfully complex polyphon polyphonic music. People have soccer games and television and other things, which for better or for worse, probably mostly worse, draw us away from um, church and its activities. But Bach, Bach lived lived there at the church. He taught Latin. He taught his the boys' school. He had um, professional musicians who worked under him. So he was able to to provide music for really the daily services that they had seven days a week. Not all of them have the same level of services. And unfortunately, most of our services are on Sunday and we don't have that same level of complexity. But I, because we uh, focus on the word of God, we have the word of God in the, in the service of the word and then celebrate the sacrament. That's the thing that brings us together. Our music may be slightly different than Bach's and we may use less of his music in a practical basis, but regardless, it certainly conveys the word of God um, in our modern times too. Absolutely. And uh, thanks be to God that we can share this musical heritage uh, across hundreds of years and, and to be able to still have this music in our Lutheran music heritage and, and to be able to still perform and and hear these cantatas and all of this this beautiful music that Bach composed uh, that lives on to today to our own uh, for our own chorales and our own Bach societies. Um, and it, this is this has been so fun to talk with you, Benjamin, today about Bach's place in our church music and our hymnody. Thank you so much for joining me on the Coffee Hour today. You're welcome. Thanks, sir. Benjamin Kologi, member of Faith Lutheran Church in Plano, Texas, highly active church organist and composer and contributor to the Lutheran Service Book Hymnal Companion, joining us today for Bach Week. Uh, don't forget, you can find all of the rest of these Bach Week episodes at kfuo.org slash the coffee hour. Uh, you're going to want to listen to all of them. They have a slightly different take in each of them. You'll learn uh, lots of things about J.S. Bach. You're listening to the coffee hour. I'm Sarah Golseth. The Coffee Hour with Andy and Sarah is a production of KFUO. To support the Coffee Hour and KFUO Radio, visit KFUO.org. You can also text KFUO to 41444 or send an email to gifts at KFUO.org. And you can call us at 800-844-0524. KFUO. Christ for you anytime, anywhere. Anywhere.